and we'll read the text. <laughs> I know that you guys read ahead. You know everything that we're going to discuss. Verse 13, and we'll read to the end. Then little children were brought to Jesus that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them, presumably the, the, the parents, not the children. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them and departed from there. And behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? <clears throat> Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And Come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your example, both with the children, Lord, and your masterful use of the law to fulfill what it was intended for. And I pray that we would learn from both. We'd be encouraged and um, that we could just follow in your steps. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's begin back at verse 13 through 15. Then little children were brought to him, to Jesus, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. <clears throat> so it seems from uh, the other stories in the Gospels that uh, a few of the stories, the apostles seemed to be a little bit annoyed with the people, and they thought that they were an inconvenience to Jesus as well. And so whenever it was inconvenient for them, uh, they thought they would help the people just, they would kind of shoo the people away from Jesus, thinking that Jesus was thinking the way that, that they were. They didn't want them to bother Jesus. Uh, it seemed to be the case, you remember, with the, the feeding of the 5,000, when uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, 
send these people away. Uh, and they kind of use the cover uh, so they can get something to eat. You know, we, we would look less annoyed if it was about their food, right? And uh, they did, of course, want some peace and quiet. They'd recently heard some bad news. Um, and so peace and quiet, of course, isn't a bad thing. But the people, as they had come to Jesus, they had legitimate needs. So while they're annoyed, Jesus, he had compassion for them. You know, literally his gut wrenched for um, the needs that they have. They had. And then also, you know, the story of the Phoenician woman. They, she had come, you know, pleading with Jesus to heal her daughter. And the disciples came and they said, send her away for she cries after us. So they were, they were annoyed. They were inconvenienced. So send her away. But Jesus wasn't uh, ever, it seems, from the text of Scripture, bothered by the things that annoyed his disciples. He was actually annoyed that they were annoyed. <laughs> what better things do they have to do? They don't have to get to work because they've left their work. They don't have to tend to this or that because they uh, currently are tending to all things Jesus. So what better things do they have to do? They, people were important to Jesus. He often uh, prioritized their needs over his necessary food, over his sleep. The scriptures tell us that he uh, was always going to bed after the sun went down. And, uh, and then to get time with his father, he was up before the sun came up because if he didn't, he would be just, the people would just be on him for their needs. And uh, so he went without a lot. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and then to give his life a ransom uh, to redeem man from sin. And uh, I think the disciples, uh, like so many of us, were in the process of kind of getting it. Amen? How many of you guys are, are getting it? You know, in the present tense, it's something that's happening. Uh, if you're not getting it, you need to start getting it. Uh, that we're to be uh, being like Christ in the way that he was. My iPad's acting up. So it may just kill out. And uh, then I'll have to freestyle my way through the text, which I'm really not comfortable with at all. So... Yeah, so the disciples were getting it, and uh, like we're, we should be getting it. And so when these parents uh, brought their little children, who in that culture were sometimes kind of meant to be seen, but never heard, uh, they rebuked uh, the parents. Uh, but the, the rebuke, of course, didn't represent the heart of Christ to the people. So Jesus then, sort of in an indirect way, he rebukes his disciples, and he, he actually now, even though it's been a short time, he has to remind them of something he has just previously said in Matthew 18, verse 1 through 6, but specifically verse 5. He said, you remember, whoever receives one of these little children like this, remember he brought a child to himself. He says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name, he says, they receive me. And so by example, Jesus receives these children, he lays his hands on them, and he prays for them, but not before he says, for such is the kingdom of heaven. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Well, in Matthew 18.3, Jesus said, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted, that's changed, and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You will by no means 
enter the kingdom of, of heaven. Unless there is something you know, seriously wrong in a home, little, little children trust their parents really without a care in the world. How many daddies could just throw their children to ungodly heights? I used to freak my mother-in-law out. Isaac would just go airborne, you know, and Isaac had no, no thought in his mind that his father would drop him. Um, came close a few times, <laughs> but he didn't know and didn't care. It, little children, in, in, you know, unless there's something really wrong with the home, they, they don't doubt their parents' goodness, their provision, their protection, their love. Um, and Jesus is saying that this kind of trust in Christ is the faith that is actually necessary for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so without hesitation, Jesus declares that of the children, for such is the kingdom of heaven. For such believing ones is the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> no man or woman, you know, uh, regardless of how intelligent or spiritual uh, they might be, understand really the, the magnitude of, of, of God, right? His thoughts, he says, are, are higher than yours. And I would say infinitely beyond ours. His nature in itself, all of his attributes are infinite. We can't, we can't grasp that. It's, it's just so intangible. His being, uh, all that God is, it's, it's beyond us. But, you know, if, if you communicate to a little child that, that God is with them wherever they go, that he always loves them, uh, that he created the earth in six days, that he, that he flooded the whole earth because of sin, and that he sent his son into the world to, to die for our sins, and that he was raised the third day, that he, he ascended to heaven, that he'll return and reign over the earth, they will nod their head in faith, believing everything that you've said, and then they will anticipate all of those realities. They don't care about the nuance, or how is this possible, or how is that possible. They just hear with faith. And Jesus says, indeed, for such is the kingdom of of heaven, whether it's a little child or a child at heart. He's saying, you must become, uh, I must become a child at heart in faith if I am to inherit the kingdom of heaven. We must take God at his word. So like Jesus, we should be receiving children. We should be leading them to Jesus. We should be reinforcing all that the scriptures reveal. We should be demonstrating that we believe it so they believe it and it will be instrumental in their faith. Everything that God has said about himself and salvation. Could you imagine uh, following Jesus around with one of your kids and that little child witnessing Jesus raise the dead, you know, calm the sea, cast out demons, heal the sick? That would be an imprint that just amazing, just amazing. And no wonder parents wanted to bring their kids to the Lord. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that, you know, God's, the culture of, of Israel had essentially, you know, kind of pushed children to, to the margin, to the peripheral. <clears throat> but just like they did with women and so many other things, but it didn't represent the heart of God. It didn't represent the scriptures at all. Um, we see, you know, God's heart uh, throughout the scriptures. We see it before the law. We see it during the law. We see it uh, in the new covenant. Here, let me show you some examples. Uh, in Genesis 18, before the law, uh, he says, for I have known Abraham in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord 
to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. The law didn't come for another 400 years. So he called Abraham for this very purpose. And then Deuteronomy 6 and 7, or 6, 6 and 7, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. That's during the law. And then in Ephesians 6, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training, the admonition of the Lord. Training is paideia. We're going to come back to that later. But the Greeks understood that term paideia to uh, turn their children into all things Greek. So whatever the, the ideal Greek was, that was paideia. That was the training of a Greek. Well, Paul takes that concept and he applies it to Christian parenting, that, that what it is to be all things Christian, that is to be placed into your children. Pretty sweet. The training, the paideia, admonition of the Lord. So pre-law, during the law, post-law, God is looking for godly offspring. And the only way to do that is to constantly, day by day, just instructing them in the word. Glad to be a part of a, a church that is very intentional about that. Parents, what a great example. Keep it up. Let's move on. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Well, this is a really good question, don't you think? But careful what you ask for when you come to Jesus, okay? The, the passage reveals that this young man uh, is extremely wealthy, but, you know, something deep inside of him, he knows that there's something that's lacking. Something's amiss, something's wrong. Uh, if he is to inherit eternal life, uh, he has recognized Jesus at least an authority on the subject of the kingdom. I mean, he has come preaching, you know, repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's taught the Sermon on the Mount, which we've called the Edicts of the Kingdom. So this has been circulating. Perhaps he's heard much of what Jesus has said. So he recognizes Jesus as an authority on the subject. He calls Jesus good teacher, but he's just not prepared for what Jesus will say. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. The first part of that response is quite mysterious to me, but Jesus said it, okay? Um, you know, the only God is good is a demonstrable fact. Um, <clears throat> you know, every one of us has strayed from God's moral character in one way, uh, not or another, but one way and another, right? All of us have. We've done it in word, the things we say, our thoughts, our deeds, our motives. We're uh, by our very nature, uh, we're sinful, we're, we're contrary to God. Even after you get saved, you're born again, the spirit of God regenerates you, dwells in you. There's something in you that is still striving to be contrary to God. Have you noticed that? Yeah. It's there. It's there. But God is, is pure through and through. He, he's completely free of evil, and he's free uh, not to do evil. But why did Jesus respond this way to the young man? Why do you call me good? You know, uh, no one is good but one. That is God. Is, is Jesus, you know, asking the man, 
Do you mean to say that I am God by saying that I am good? I mean, Jesus certainly isn't denying his deity, for he has made claims throughout the Gospels to deity. He has said, uh, he has rather, by his great power over nature and space, demons, illness, the way that he, he has the authority to forgive sins, which only God can do, all of this to demonstrate that he's God. It's a very interesting response. I don't know for sure why uh, he, he said it to, to this guy, uh, what he exactly was trying to communicate. Uh, the statement in itself that God is the only one that is good, it's true, but why did he respond this way? Yeah, I don't know. If you know, please share, okay? But of course, the, this young man didn't come for a theological discussion, did he? He's, he's got an agenda here. He came to find out how he might inherit eternal life, to which Jesus said, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And so the young man responded, which ones? Which ones? This is not a great question. It's not, not for, not especially for a first century uh, Jew. The, the law is clear that unless you obey everything recorded in it, you are cursed. Deuteronomy 27, 26, Jeremiah 11, verse 3. The same issue came up with the the Christians in Galatia, uh, Galatia rather, which is modern day Turkey. Uh, They had been duped by a group of Jews called the Judaizers who were telling that they needed to keep the law in order to be well-pleasing to God. But Paul informed the believers there of the same truth. He quoted Deuteronomy 27, 26. He said, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So it's not a matter of obeying some of the commandments. It's a matter of obeying all of them. If you keep all of the commandments and fail in one, James 2.10 says you're guilty of all of it. How many guilty people in this room? Yeah. But instead of making this sweeping statement to this Jew who should have known better, Jesus gets specific. He said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in response to the question, you know, which commandments, which ones, Jesus provides five and then one that sums them up. Jesus actually quotes the first five commandments of the second table of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Leaving out the sixth commandment, which is, you shall not covet. Okay? So you guys know the Ten Commandments are divided into two categories. The first four speak of Israel's obligation to God, and the last six speak of their obligation to their fellow man. And the command to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, that's of course, isn't from the Ten Commandments, but they summarize the last six. It just summarizes them. For if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, which means that if you take the love that you have for yourself and you bestow it on your neighbor, okay, you won't violate any of these. You won't dishonor your father and mother. You won't murder someone. You won't cheat on your wife. You won't, you guys get it? You won't steal from someone. You won't lie about them in court, okay? You won't covet what is theirs or what you shouldn't have. So, Jesus, it's interesting, says nothing in regard to this man's obligation to God 
from the first four commandments, and he omits the commandment from the second table that condemns covetousness. I think he's being very strategic here. Keeping the commandments in regard to his obligation to his fellow man is the only response, really, that he initially gives you know, to this question, what good things shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the question here, is Jesus teaching that we have to keep the last six commandments of the law to inherit eternal life? Is that what's happening here? If that's what Jesus is teaching, he's teaching something that's, that's not found anywhere in the scriptures. In fact, it is contrary to everything that the Bible says about obtaining or securing eternal life. Would Jesus be contrary to the scriptures? I mean, he inspired them. It's his word. How could he be contrary to them? But if that's not what Jesus believed, and it's certainly not what the Bible teaches, why then did Jesus point this young man to the law? He did it for the same reason that we should, but it's not what's typically practiced, okay? It's not what's typically practiced. If some random person came to us asking, hey, you're a Christian, right? What must I do to be saved? Or how can I inherit eternal life? Most evangelicals would say, hmm, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why didn't Jesus just give that simple answer? Or he could have said, by the way, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's probably the most quoted verse in the context of evangelism. It's all true, but it's lacking something that is absolutely essential to the proclamation of the gospel. And that's getting down to a person's recognition of their own sin and their need to repent of it, to, to turn away from it. For if someone does not repent, what did Jesus say? You will perish. You, you can't enter the kingdom without repentance. It says, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. So repentance of sin and faith in Christ are two sides of the same coin. But what does that have to do with Jesus' response to the man? Well, Jesus understood more than anyone that, that every person has sinned, amen? And that they fall short of God's moral beauty. They, they stand, all of us stand in stark contrast to his character and, and his will for us. We've sinned. If we're outside of Christ, we're an offense to God. He is holy. Man is morally corrupt. We're rebellious by nature. We're rebellious in our behavior. You know, Jesus in all of his preaching, he refused at all times to ignore the reality of man's sin and the consequences that were for it. I mean, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he explicitly talks about judgment or implies it, I think, like 24 times. He's always talking about sin and its consequences. When he started preaching, his first sermon began with what word? Repent. Repent. Yeah. All of his preaching began with repentance from the beginning. Man was being called to turn away from sin, to align himself with God. So when this man came to Jesus asking, you know, what good thing, I shall, what good thing should I do that I might inherit eternal life? Jesus pointed him to the law not as a means of obtaining eternal life or earning eternal life, but that which could lead him to an understanding of his own sin and his need for repentance. Jesus was perfectly aware of this man's sin, but he wanted the man to become aware of it. You notice sometimes that the deceitfulness of sin has deceived you about your own sin? Yeah. We're not fully aware of it, and that's why it's good to have others around us. We need the Holy Spirit, but 
we also have something in the scriptures. So by presenting the commandments to the man, Jesus was saying, how does your life compare to the moral perfection that's portrayed in the law of God? So here's how the man responded. (laughs) He said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? How many guys believe him? (laughs) It takes quite the imagination, okay? But just try to imagine for a moment that the man had actually kept all of those commandments since he was a kid. Now, I love Jesus. He, he, he knows better, but he doesn't need to argue with someone who is convinced of their own righteousness. So he just, he cuts right to the heart of the issue. Jesus said to him, all right, well, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasures or treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, when the man said, all these I have kept from my youth, I can just hear Jesus's thoughts. You know, assuming that you've accomplished the impossible by keeping the commandments from your youth, all you have to do is be perfect. All that you have to do, rather, to be perfect is just sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. I love it. Jesus saw this man coming. He knew exactly how to just address the man's sin. So how did the man respond? When the man heard that saying, he went away Sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Do you see what's happening here? How many of you guys would just let the guy go away in that condition? Just seems so mean, doesn't it? Heartless. I think it's the most loving thing. You see, having possessions wasn't the problem. The problem was that his possessions had the man, had him. His wealth had possession of his heart. He, He couldn't bear the thought of being without his abundance. That was everything to him. And then the thought of leaving it behind made him want it more. So what God was telling him to leave behind revealed that there was some problems in him. He was a covetous idolater. His possessions, which he couldn't set aside, that was his true God. That was his true God. The object of his worship, his affection. He lusted after those things more than God himself. So because of his love for wealth, there was no room for the love of God, which happens to violate the first commandments on the other table, doesn't it? Yeah. So without even mentioning the first and the last commandments, the man demonstrated that he was in violation of both. Jesus didn't have to mention them. He, he indirectly brought them about. The man didn't love God above all else. He loved money above all else, which ultimately left out God and it left out his neighbor. This is, you know, this is the interesting connection between the first commandment in the first table and the last commandment in the second. Look at what Paul says. He says, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry idolatry. This man could not receive eternal life from Jesus because he would not forsake his God. His God kept him from the one true God, and and it kept him from loving his neighbor enough to distribute his goods. You see, God will have no rival. Amen? He will have no rival. Jesus had said earlier that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one And love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is wealth. 
or it's what money can obtain. That's mammon. Mammon was also in, in the, the, the Assyrian context was a god, the god of money. So it was used here. Yeah. You know, man can have wealth because there's nothing wrong with wealth itself. Isn't that true? There's nothing wrong with wealth itself. But as soon as wealth takes possession of a man's heart, man will serve his mammon and he will turn from God. He can't do both as soon as mammon takes possession of him. He may pretend to be loyal to God, but when God says to that person, okay, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, the worshiper of mammon will despise God for even saying it, and then his true loyalties will come to the surface. He will covet his wealth more than the God who can save him. So Jesus, what he does is he points the rich man to the law to address what is actually in his heart, to draw it out, to make him aware of the fact that he's guilty before God and that his guilt is ex- excludes him from the kingdom of God. This was no insignificant requirement. You see, he wanted the greatest gift from God, but he didn't want to love God above all else. It's crazy. You know, essentially, this, this wealthy man was looking for more wealth. He had enough earthly wealth to you know, support countless families. And now he's trying to bargain with God for heavenly wealth and, and spiritual security. He just simply wanted more. But it wasn't about God at all. It was just about him securing more for himself. And so when he couldn't get it without giving up something, he went away sorrowful. He wasn't willing to repent of his love for money. You know, if the man didn't have a deep affection for wealth, And he came to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus would have said nothing about his wealth. He would have poked someplace else. And trust me, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, always pokes. The dentists do this because they don't always know exactly what's wrong or where it is. But that really sharp piece of metal that he uses, that's what Jesus is doing here. He he knows, though, because he's the x-ray machine, right? And he starts scraping and poking until the guy's like, ooh, oh, not my wealth. Don't touch me there. So he's exposing sin. He says, that needs to come out before I go in, before you inherit eternal life. This issue must be taken care of. You guys get it? If he actually loved God above his wealth, there would have been no discussion about wealth. There would have been something else to repent of. This was the issue for him. He was a covetous idolater. It's exposed by God's law. This is what Paul would call a useful, or not a useful, but a lawful use of God's law. He says this to Timothy. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, saying that there's a legal use of the law. He says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the ungodly and profane, or unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine or healthy teaching, the, the law or the lawful use of the law is to, is to bear upon the sinner's conscience, to expose their sin in order to establish their guilt. The law shows the sinner what they must repent of. That's what Jesus is doing. Paul told the Romans, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay? The law, he says, stops the mouth from justifying his actions, his thoughts, his deeds, his motives, right? It stops the mouth from justifying itself. The law functions to demonstrate that all are guilty of sin before God. How many of you guys have looked at the law and said, good job, I've done so well. And that's the problem with the, the 10th commandment because it addresses the deepest part of you. It, it addresses lust, it, it addresses motive, it, it addresses what nobody else can really see, right? Covetousness, it just gets down to it. And if you're honest with the law, uh, your mouth will be stopped, be stopped. For by it is the knowledge of sin that brings guilt before God. And because it's established guilt in you, there's no way for you to be justified by it because you're already guilty of breaking it. So you can't now turn to the law, Paul says, for justification. It's way too late. And besides, you were born a sinner guilty of transgression. So it's too late for you. The law simply makes the sinner aware of their sin as Jesus did with the rich young man. You know, something else, prior to the man coming to Jesus, he thought that his commitment to wealth was no big deal. But Jesus, through the law, demonstrated that his affection for it was profane and that it would rob him of the kingdom. That's another function of the law. The law intensifies sin. Paul says this, he says, sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. Like what Ray Comfort says, he says, the law serves like a magnifying glass. You put the glass over the object, and then to make the object bigger, you draw it back, and then the the object just grows in the lens, doesn't it? Well, the law of God is like that. It comes over our life, and then God pulls it back. You thought the white lie was an innocent little thing, and God says, no, it's profane. It's not just lightly broken. It's, It's greatly broken. Your thought life, your motives, everything, the law makes it exceedingly sinful before a holy God. It's a crazy function. It clarifies, it magnifies, it intensifies sin. So the man's affection for his wealth was so exceedingly offensive to God that he, Jesus says, you're excluded from the kingdom. Jeez, all revealed to him. Paul revealed another function of the law in Galatians. He says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Yeah. The word tutor is the Greek word paidagogos. Uh, Say that. Paidagogos. A paidagogos was a slave, and he was assigned to the boy of, of his master, you know, to direct his moral and his ethical uh, path until he came of age around age 16. So the law, as a paidagogos, can't imagine speaking Greek in a Greek culture. It's these huge words that can't be pronounced. So the law was meant to point out sin and our need for a savior who could then justify us from all sin. Not by keeping the law, but through faith in Christ who shed his own blood for our sins. And once we come to faith, as Paul says in verse 25, there's no longer any need for the paedagogos, the law. A.T. Robertson says, the pedagogue is dismissed and now we're in the school of the master. We need to come to Christ. But before someone comes to faith like the rich man, God's law comes to address the sin, 
that people may otherwise be unaware of. And then the law elevates their need for the Savior. As the psalmist said, the law is perfect, converting the soul. So Jesus, actually, because of his love for this young man, he used the law of God to reveal sin that he needed to repent of so that he could come, so that he could be saved. You know, some of you perhaps are unaware of something about you that offends God, and and it keeps you from experiencing his redemptive grace. I have no clue what's in your heart, but I know that the Holy Spirit can do that to evaluate you, and I'm sure that he would use his law. You know, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God above all else with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that the second commandment is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you honestly evaluate yourself based upon his demands, and those are heavenly demands upon humanity. When you evaluate yourself based upon those demands, ask the Holy Spirit to expose more precisely what it is that offends. And when he starts poking and it hurts, guess what? It hurts you, but it offends him deeply. He's holy. He's called us to holiness. God is most interested in your redemption. Otherwise, he would not have come into this world as a man and bore your sin and guilt and be punished in your place. He is super interested. He loves the world. But the scriptures are clear. You must identify sin. You must repent. And then you must respond by faith. Otherwise, as Jesus says so many times in the Gospels, you will be excluded. He desires for you to come. There are conditions for coming. Don't be foolish. Forsake your sin and be saved. Inherit eternal life. Let's go back to Matthew 19. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so the, the rich young man is unwilling to repent. He's left sorrowful. So Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do camels go through the eyes of needles? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's something about the human heart when it, it has wealth at its disposal. It's, it's like an addictive chemical. You know, it's like meth. It's like heroin. You know, as we've said, there's nothing wrong with wealth itself. The problem is the human heart. The heart of man is covetous by nature, and, and there's nothing like wealth to feed that lust. There's nothing like money to acquire whatever it is that the heart longs for, that, that profane vacuum. And the person who ends up in bondage to wealth, the scriptures would say he's free in regard to the things of God because he belongs to another master. What a dangerous place to be. Paul says in Romans 6, at one time you were in free in regard to righteousness because you didn't belong to God. Hebrews talks about the same thing, but what a deadly place to be. So what happens is when that person is in that state, as soon as God makes any real demands on them like repentance, they turn away, and they comfort themselves in their wealth. So Jesus says that it's most difficult for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he's saying it's impossible, just as it would be impossible for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Now, some people get lost in this idea that there's a, a passage in, in, in the desert of Israel that's super narrow, and, and, and camels have to get down on their knees to get through. Who cares about any of that? We can't know that for sure. There's no real record of it. Uh, But Jesus' point is clear. It's impossible. So when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, 
With men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Jesus' conclusion about the wealthy, it says it greatly astonished them. The word astonished means to be knocked out of one's senses. But it's worse than that because they were greatly astonished. Their senses were knocked out of the park. These guys are just, they cannot believe what Jesus has just affirmed to them. They can't fathom it. Why? Well, I'm going to take a shot at perhaps, you know, because rich men are not the only ones who love money and put their trust in it. You know, people of all sorts are addicted to what money can attain, aren't they? Some people are good at saving money and getting wealthy. Other people are good at money and just getting money and just spending it. So if it's possible for a rich man to get into heaven, I think the disciples were thinking that because of the love of money, there's just no chance for anyone. For they, they didn't have money, they desired to have it. Their hearts were covetous for it, right? Something's wrong with us. Yeah. You know, the truth is, without God, um, no one, no man is entering the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is saying, really, that it's more difficult for those who have made this world comfortable for themselves by way of wealth, as a way of anchoring them and their affections to the earth. God can save them, uh, but they happen to be less interested in salvation than others. Without God, none of us would have, none of us can come, but neither would any of us initiate. We wouldn't even have any desire for it. Apart from God, nobody desires God. No one seeks after him, Paul says in Romans 3. Uh, we love God only because he first loved us. We desire God only after he draws us, after he woos us and pursues us, only after he calls out to us. Uh, we can respond, but nobody, no man initiates. You guys understand that? It's, it's a problem with our depravity. We don't initiate, we don't seek out, we don't do anything until God first initiates with us. Yeah, we're pretty pretty broken. Well, then Peter answered and said to him, see, we, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? You know, it's true. Uh, the disciples had essentially done what Jesus told the rich man to do. They didn't have great possessions to sell, so they didn't have money to give to the poor, but they had essentially given up all to follow Jesus, hadn't they? Now, Peter, of course, he didn't leave his wife behind. Uh, he didn't divorce her and get rid of her. She's found later in the Gospels uh, attending him in his missionary work. But what their life was before they met Christ, it's gone. It's gone. So if the rich man was promised treasures in heaven, if he would repent and all of that, what would the disciples inherit? Now, the question, I think, is a legitimate one. I've heard pastors criticize Peter for asking, but wasn't it Jesus that told people to count the cost? He did. And I think that that's what Peter was doing. You know, if Peter was to be criticized, wasn't Jesus well-equipped to do that? Hadn't he done it in the past? He had, but he doesn't do it here. I don't think there's need for rebuke here. The boys had left their jobs, they'd left their homes, their communities, and they hit the road to follow Jesus. The leadership of Israel and the vast majority of all the people were now at odds with them. So the question is, how will this all end? What's in store for us? Wouldn't you want to know? Inquiring minds want to know. So Jesus gives this response, which is interesting. It reveals the nature of God's promises to his new covenant people 
which is so very different from the promises of God in the Old Testament and the constituents in it, which we'll cover next Sunday. I don't have time for it today. But as always, you're welcome to read ahead, study the scriptures, and then we'll get back together and talk about it. Fair enough? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Father, we love you. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for Jesus's, just his example in, in working with someone who was lost and doing it, I think, in a way that was just so unexpected for many of us. But Lord, when we get to the book of Acts, we see that the, all the sermons there address sin and repentance and judgment to come, the need for faith in Christ. Lord, help us by the example of scripture to be as interested as you are in the redemption of people, but Lord, to be prudent. We don't want to fill the church with false converts who have, who have come here without repentance and give the, the impression that they're, they're saved, that, that they are um, constituents of the kingdom, Lord. Lord, help us to be wise in, in addressing sin and calling people lovingly to repentance. For without it, as Jesus said, they will perish. So help us not to <clears throat> overlook necessary things in the redemption of And Lord, I, it's impossible for me to know what's in the heart of everybody on a Sunday morning. And so Lord, I would just pray that as your word has been preached, I pray that your spirit would minister to, to the hearts of each person. If there's unrepentance among us, Lord, in any of us, Lord, that you would bring that to the surface. As your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us, to cleanse us. So Lord, help us to go to you, to be washed. And for some of us, Lord, to come for the first time, to be washed and forgiven and redeemed. So Lord, work among us, we pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.